That's Mark 15. And we're going to begin at verse 33, reading down to verse 39. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, I know this is not very original. Um, I'm sure this has been said many times before, but some of my favourite movies are The Lord of the Rings. I've watched them quite a few times. Most recently, when we were housebound a few months ago, as a family, we made our way through the extended versions of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Not for the first time, I may add. Now, throughout the films... The drama is building towards this big scene at the end where our heroes find themselves at Mount Doom, at the very heart of Mordor. At this point in the story, the viewer has invested about 11 hours of their life in the story to this point. And even though I've seen them several times before, I know what's going to happen. I'm still gripped in this crucial scene. But just imagine for a moment that someone comes to join you who has somehow managed to avoid seeing any of the films or read the books or even know the story and they join you to watch this final scene. Now, I'm sure the dramatic music and the cinematography, I can't even speak, the, the dramatic scenes <laughs> <laughs> would alert the person to know that something crucial was happening. But actually they probably wouldn't know what was going on. Not knowing the rest of the story would mean they wouldn't really know what was going on. They'd probably be thinking, why throw away a perfectly good ring and why make such a fuss about it? Well, this morning, we arrive at the equivalent scene in Mark's Gospel. Everything has been building towards this big moment and the future, not just of a make-believe world, but the future of the world, of all mankind, hangs in the balance. To really understand why these events are so important, we need to know what's gone on before this. We need to know where this scene fits into the big story of the Bible. When you read Mark's Gospel, it's really important to acknowledge two questions that he is seeking to answer as he writes. Firstly, he's asking, who is Jesus? And secondly, he's asking, why did Jesus come? Mark answers that first question in the very first verse of the gospel. The gospel begins the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Mark then spends the next eight chapters evidencing that Jesus is the Messiah. He does this by showing what Jesus said and what he did. He taught as one with authority and he, he carried out miracles. He healed people. He even brought the dead back to life. Halfway through Mark's gospel in chapter eight, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And wonderfully, they get it. Peter declares in Mark chapter eight, you are the Messiah. Understanding who Jesus is, is really important, but actually it's only half of the story. We also need to understand why did Jesus come? Now the Jews were familiar with the scripture and they had read that the Messiah was going to come and bring freedom to God's people. So many of them assumed that meant that they would have a warrior Messiah who would come and rise up against the, the Romans and free them from Roman occupation. However, in the second half of the book of Mark, Jesus makes it very clear that the victory he is going to bring is not just against earthly powers, but against an even bigger problem, against our separation from God and the thing which causes that separation, our sin. The only way to restore the world to the way it was supposed to be is to deal with our sin. The only way to bring true freedom and healing and peace, the only way to fix what we had broken is to fix the problem of sin, which separates mankind from God. With all this in mind, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. Christ died to bring peace to his people because there was no other way. So first point, Christ died. Now on Good Friday, you might think that's a painfully obvious first point, but actually it's a very important one. Mark and the other gospel writers all like to draw out slightly different things as they talk about the crucifixion. But there's one thing that all of them want us to see, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Messiah, died. Look at verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Mark always chooses his words very carefully. He doesn't just say that Jesus stopped breathing, but he breathed his last. There is a finality in that phrase. Humiliated and alone and in unimaginable pain, the Son of God exhaled for the final time. The Apostle John, who is an eyewitness to these events, records that after Jesus had died, one of the Roman soldiers took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. And it says he brought forth a sudden flow of blood and water. That's because when blood stops pumping around the body, it begins to separate into the darker red blood cells and to lighter plasma. Jesus was not nearly dead, he died. When you've read and heard this account numerous times before, it's almost impossible to comprehend just how dark a day this was for Jesus' followers. The one they had spent several years following, the one they believed was the promised Messiah, was dead. I mean, Jesus had talked about this. He told them it was going to happen. He'd even told them what was going to happen next. But Mark knows that his readers are going to have a question. Why? Why would God allow this to happen? Mark's answer to this question is profound. I've read some really long and difficult to understand books which seek to explain why Jesus died and what his death accomplished. 
Mark does it in one sentence. Jesus breathed his laughs and then in verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Our first point was Jesus died. Our second point is to bring peace to his people. I said that to understand this scene properly, we need to see it in the full context of the big story of the Bible. To understand why a curtain ripping is such a significant thing, we need to take a big step back. So let's go right back to the beginning. In the beginning was God, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son and the Spirit. They have no beginning and they need nothing outside themselves. They have always existed and live in perfect, joy-filled community. This joy and intimacy was so good that they wanted to share it, so they created the earth and everything in it. The very first humans were invited into this perfect relationship. And inside this relationship, there is nothing bad and nothing sad. Life was perfect. But then one day, a doubt crept into mankind's mind. We began to suspect that God was not really good and that, in fact, he was trying to keep good things from us. So we chose to reject God by rejecting his perfect rules. God called that rejection sin. And sin ruined everything. And because people were no longer perfect, they could no longer be in the presence of a perfect God. This all happens in the first three chapters of the Bible and the rest of the story is predominantly a story about God glorifying himself by rescuing and redeeming himself a people. It is the story of rejoining what sin separated. But from the outset there is this crucial question and a problem which seems like there is no reconciliation. How can God be both just and merciful? Because if he is just, then he will rightly punish all sin. But if that's true, how can he show mercy to anyone? Well, the story continues, and after rescuing his people from physical slavery in Egypt, God gives them a list of rules, a perfect way to live out their newfound freedom. But once again, God's people disobey. They doubt that God is good and they continue to rebel. So now God gives them a temple, a place where they could make animal sacrifices to atone for their sin. At the very centre of the temple was a place that represented the place on earth where God dwelt. But there was still a problem. The blood of animals was never enough to atone for the great weight of our sin. So apart from one person, once a year, No one could come into God's presence. There was a huge curtain as thick as a man's hand which separated a holy God from a sinful people. Mark tells us that when Jesus died, this curtain was torn in two. And don't miss the way it's described, the way it happens. It wasn't from, it was from top to bottom. Men hadn't snuck in and done it. God had burst out and done it. Now we think of death as natural, as inevitable, but it's the the result of sin. You see, where there is no sin, there is no death. Jesus didn't die because he was sinful. He died because he stepped in as a substitute 
in the place of his people. The judgment that we deserved was poured on Christ. For Jesus, this was the horror of the cross. The physical pain was awful, but it was nothing compared to the judgment that fell on him as he died. This is why he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time ever, instead of experiencing acceptance and love from his father, he experiences judgment. Not judgment for anything he has done, but judgment for all the wrong things his people have and will ever do. The punishment for the sins of God's people are poured upon him as he dies on the cross. On the cross, God showed perfectly that he is both just and merciful, and he offers that mercy to anyone who will come to him and repent of their sins, trust in Jesus, and follow him. And what's more, Christ's death didn't just secure for us forgiveness, but peace. The modern use of the word peace just tends to mean the absence of war. But in the Bible, the phrase is far richer. The Hebrew word shalom, which means complete or whole. It doesn't just mean absence of hostility, but the restoration of relationship. To be at peace is to be whole, to be lacking nothing. When Jesus bore the sins of his people on the cross, God not only forgave, he adopted, he restored, he made whole. For those who trust in Jesus, their sins are forgiven. And they can once again experience the life that we were all made for, a relationship with God. That's why we call today Good Friday. And that doesn't mean that life as a Christian will always be easy. In fact, Jesus warns us that life will be difficult, there will be struggles. But through those struggles and through that hardship, we can experience what we were made for, peace with God. So point one was Christ died. Point two was to bring peace to his people. Point three is because there was no other way. Now, many of us have heard this message many times before. And whilst we may believe it, it doesn't really personally connect when I think like that, it's usually because I look at myself and I am the first to admit, I'm not perfect. But do I really deserve to die? I mean, the Bible talks about eternal punishment. Isn't that just for people who are really bad? If God was just, surely then he would just punish me in a way that's proportionate to my sin, which I often think is a misdemeanor, really. The problem here is that I see sin very differently from the way God sees sins. Forgive me for a slightly crude illustration, but it's a really good way of pointing to the, the difference in the way we see sin and the way God sees sin. It's all about the context in which sin happens. I'm gonna describe a situation and I'm gonna keep adding layers to it. As I do, we will consider what would be a proportionate punishment for the actions that we're hearing about. I warned you it's a little crude. The, the situation is this. A man is urinating in a public place during the day. Now, it's not very nice, is it? But I think we can all agree there are far worse things happening in the world. Probably a good telling off would be in order. 
the man is in central London and the streets are busy. I mean, that makes it worse. No one wants to see that sort of thing. So maybe at this point, a small fine would be proportionate. The man is urinating on a war memorial. I mean, that significantly changes things, doesn't it? The level of disrespect that this person is showing is shocking. I think at this point we'd agree that the police need to be involved and it would probably be suitable to have some sort of social media post which names and shames this lowlife. It's Remembrance Day and it's not just any war memorial, it's the Cenotaph at Whitehall. The people surrounding it are the veterans and widows who lost loved ones fighting for the freedoms which this man is enjoying. I mean, suddenly the police doesn't seem enough, does it? Most of us would want to grab hold of this person before the police arrived and teach him a lesson. Finally, the moment the man chooses to relieve himself was as the Queen kneels to lay down a wreath. And as he did, he shouts profanities at her and all of those around him. I think it's fair to say that at this point, someone would be starting a petition to bring back the death penalty. (laughs) What could start out sounding like nothing more than undesirable behaviour can quickly be revealed for what it really is, an abhorrent act when it's seen in its proper context. The disrespect that this man shows to the dead, to veterans and to the Queen, it is shocking. When we sin, we are not primarily sinning against other people. We are sinning against a holy, righteous God. We are rejecting and dishonouring him. The scenario we just talked about is pretty horrible. But when we sin, we do something infinitely worse. There are no misdemeanours when it comes to rebellion against a holy God. Before we can see why the cross was the only way, we must recognise the depth of our sin and the height and holiness of the one that we sin against. We must see that we deserve the punishment that Christ received and that if Christ hadn't died on the cross, then there would be nothing we could ever do to repay the debt for which we owe. We would have no hope and God's wrath would rightly fall upon us. I was trying to explain this to a young person recently and they asked a great question. They, they said, if Jesus is saying that trusting in me is the only way to avoid hell, isn't that a threat? I mean, Jesus is essentially giving an ultimatum, my way or death. I thought Jesus was supposed to be loving. Don't kids have a great way of asking the questions which a lot of us think but don't want to say? I said to them, imagine you are trapped inside a burning building. There's no way out and you've got no hope. The room is getting hotter and hotter and smoke starts leaking under the door. Just as you think you are going to die and there is no hope, a fireman comes bursting into the room. He says to you, if you want to live, follow me. Now is that a threat or is it just a fact? And let's take this illustration a little further. You start following the fireman, but he looks back and he sees that because of smoke, you're becoming weak and you can barely walk. So he puts his arm around you and he starts helping you out of the building. But a few more steps in and you can't even walk. So he picks you up and he carries you through this building, which is on fire. 
ahead you see a window and with it comes hope but the trouble is the ladder leaning up to the window is an old one and it's only strong enough for one of you to climb out without thinking the fireman puts you on the ladder but as he does the flames come bursting into the room the ceiling collapses and he is killed he died so that you could live and what makes it even worse is this is the ladder this fireman climbed into the building on he knew that only one of you was coming out he went into the building to rescue you knowing it would cost nothing less than his life when he told you the only way to live was to follow him was it a threat or was he showing you a depth of love which you will find nowhere else on the entire planet the son of god died in unimaginable spiritual and physical pain to rescue his people we've seen in the run-up we've seen in that video that we watched before i preached jesus desperately didn't want to go through these awful awful experience to say there is a way of being saved apart from jesus is to say that the cross was unnecessary do you think that jesus would have willingly gone through something so awful if there was any other way to save his people he died because it was the only way because he is the only way there is no salvation outside of jesus i want to finish by asking you a question what's the worst thing in your life right now is there something that keeps you awake at night is there a situation or events that feel utterly hopeless that seem to suck the joy out of everything you do that cause you to hear messages like this one with indifference because whilst you know the theory of God's love it just doesn't match with your experience because if God really loved you let's face it he would stop that thing in your life which is causing you so much hurt if that's how you feel I am so sorry I don't pretend to have all the answers but I do know that the cross tells you what the answer is not it can't be he doesn't love you he loves you so much that he went through ultimate suffering to make you his if you're a Christian and you're suffering now then with all your strength lift your eyes from your suffering to the one who suffered and died in your place so that you could live come back on Sunday and see that this is not the end of the story Sunday is coming and with it comes life and hope and joy perhaps you don't know Jesus and you've chosen to live your life for something else we all have to choose to live our lives for something maybe for you it's family or it's work or maybe it's making the world a better place or just enjoying yourself all of those are good things but if you make them the ultimate thing you live for then ultimately they will ask you to give up everything you have to make them yours Jesus likewise asks his followers to give up everything to follow him but he is the only one who does that because first he gave up everything to make you his and not just to give you life but so that you could experience the perfect life you were always created for peace with God so you could experience true joy 
Will you, like the Roman centurion in our last verse, look at Christ on the cross and conclude, surely this man was the Son of God?